welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Hello friends, welcome to Tent Talks. This is Chris Marchand. Ever since this podcast started, I've offered an annual episode with reflections and conversations about the Christmas holiday season. In the first couple of years, we looked at serving others and then resting at Christmas. And last year, I had a conversation with Sean McCoy about sad Christmas songs. One thing I haven't been able to do is to have a conversation with another Christmas expert, uh, someone who's spent as much time as I have reading about the history of the holiday, how it's been celebrated over the years, and even adapted down through the centuries. And this is why I'm excited to bring you today's episode. It's with Dr. Emily Hunter McGowan about her book, Christmas, The Season of Life and Light, part of the Fullness of Time series published by InterVarsity Press. That series features individual volumes reflecting on the church calendar year, Lent, Advent, Easter, Pentecost, and an upcoming volume on Epiphany. Emily's book draws on the breadth and depth of the Christmas traditions, and I found it at once joyful and somber. It lingers within and compels us to move through the darkness while always pointing us to the light. Our conversation covers the larger ideas that my own book, Celebrating the Twelve Days of Christmas, laid out a few years ago, which is that every holiday contains four interlocking fundamental elements. Service, rest, celebration, and worship. I hope that what we discuss is relevant to those of you who have joined us here in the tent over the years. This is a Christmas talk rooted in the political ramifications of the holiday with the hope of always pointing the way to Jesus. And we also get into some fun side conversations, such as if we will ever figure out the actual day when Jesus was born. I hope this conversation finds you well and gives you plenty of time before the holidays to consider how you want to approach it this year. And I hope you add Emily's book to your annual list of Christmas books as a way of putting you in a place of being equally parts challenged and encouraged. Christmas and how does it exist? Is it about me and my family, you and your family? Is it something more broader communally? And what do we do about the tensions between what Christmas is today versus how it perhaps perhaps operated in the past? All those, all these kind of fun things. And they do relate to the family, right? They do. They absolutely do. Yeah. I mean, even just the statement, I, I know every year you've probably, I know you've seen this, Every year that there is a, a Christmas that falls on a Sunday, like when Christmas Day falls on Sunday, there are these online debates, especially among pastors and folks in ministry. Should we have church services? Should we not? And then there are the folks who are saying, well, Christmas Day is about being with family. And then there's the folks who are saying, no, Christmas Day is about Jesus. And so we should gather as a church together Right. And so that debate is really interesting because it shows just the association of Christmas with the nuclear family is a relatively new development in the history of the of the of the season. But it's now so baked in that that becomes the debate every year when originally Christmas was not so much about the nuclear family, definitely not in the way that it's practiced now. And at the same time. There's no going back. And this is sort of why I wrote the book the way that I did. I don't think nostalgia helps us all that much. And I don't think romanticizing the past necessarily does us any practical good either. If we're trying to discern like how to faithfully practice Christmas now where we are, we just have to accept this is where we find ourselves. Um, but I think part of that means seeing that we are actually in a unique place historically. Well, that's interesting. I have I have some questions about that because it's that tension between where do we push and try to advocate for larger changes about how Christmas is celebrated versus, come on, you know, like how are we going to fight this this a, a, a cultural behemoth like this? And so, and, and where do they where do they meet? I'm so I'm I'm curious what you think about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can we get more specific? Because like there is this. I will get more specific. 
Yeah, because you're right. But are we talking about like Christmas gifts? Are we talking about decorations? Are we talking about, yeah, like, can we get more specific? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get into it. You, throughout the book, bring up various tragedies and couple them with the holiday. And some of them are really, really contemporary. Like, I was surprised to read them when I thought, oh, I never would have thought to kind of connect those things. And But I don't know, I, I guess, since we're on it, uh, how did you go about making that decision? You, you mentioned the Standy Hook shooting. You mentioned Iraqi Christians being able to once again worship publicly. You you mentioned like uh, one of the the utterly bitter modern day ironies is the the wall between uh, the various walls and checkpoints between uh, Israel and Palestine, Bethlehem. I mean, uh, you know, we. I mean, I've seen some travel shows and some some histories about it. It's 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 really complicated uh, where you're at and and what you're allowed to do, which. That kind of like dims the whole like Holy Land experience, you know, like like armed guards everywhere you go. And I mean, I, I saw you know, this documentary about about Banksy, the the, the street artist and stuff and the, some of the work that he did over there, you know, just bringing up the irony of of this wall and what the division means and the mistreatment of Palestinian people and all that. Anyway, anything that you would speak to that regarding personal tragedies, but also like these bigger world events? Well, I feel like if it's if we're talking about the feast of the incarnation, right? Like it's absolutely vital that we acknowledge that the word is becoming flesh within a world that is deeply broken. That's that's part of the point. And and the life of Jesus itself demonstrates that from the time that he's, you know, teeny tiny. And so I feel like one of the mistakes that can be made and one of the reasons why some people even Christians are really turned off by the Christmas season is when it's framed in such a way as to ignore the darkness. Like the whole reason why the light shines is because what's around it is so dark. And if you only talk about the light and never talk about the darkness, I think a good portion of the population, maybe most of us feel somewhat alienated. But the whole point is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that among us includes both really devastating personal hurts and evils that happen, you know, within families and neighborhoods, but also like larger, broader social realities that that need to be named. It's precisely this world that God in Christ is saving. And if we we can't talk about that, we don't have a credible witness, it seems to me, within that world. I wrote an article last year that got put up on Christ in Pop Culture, and it was on the subject of sad Christmas songs and how they're actually more present than we think they are. And and that's one of my big contentions is there's actually a healing in being able to sing a sad song that we, when we, when we, our initial reaction is like, oh, that's depressing. I don't want to sing it. But like, we've been singing sad Christmas songs, like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is a kind of sad Christmas song. Oh, yes. In, in the sense of it being mournful. And then it rejoices absolutely because Christ has come or is coming. But there's just something to that, like the, that, they provide us with that opportunity to just sit and grieve if we need to and be healed. If yes. We yes. And that's, that's, I think the, the wisdom of the church calendar too, allowing us Advent prior to Christmas, we get really well acquainted if we're quote unquote doing it right. But we're, we're given a lot of space and time to tap into that, that waiting, that longing, that sadness. And that's not going to go away just because you've shifted the, 12 days of Christmas, it's still there. Yeah, we may emphasize one over the other, but the sadness remains. It's always, it's always there because this is the season that the church is always living in, this in between the times awaiting the coming of Christ. And so the, the joy and the sadness exist side by side. Before we go any further, I just want to mention one thing. Uh, and I, I meant to say this earlier. I feel tremendously honored. Thank you for for including me in your book. Oh yeah, your book was so like invaluable. It had such great ideas and and just information. I loved it. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So so you 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 quoted me in one little in one, you know, like one little brief quote, which is really great. And then I don't know if you realize this, but you probably wouldn't. There's no way you can know this. But you really did me a tremendous honor because at the end of your chapters, you you list other sources. Yeah. And I can't remember if it was like chapter one, chapter two, but you listed me right next to probably my favorite Christmas book, which is Stephen Nissenbaum's The Battle for Christmas. 
Yes. I yes. just, I think that is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. Of I do too. Yeah. It's Everybody good. should read that book. I agree. I agree. That was the one that I thought, gosh, if I could get anyone to read any of the books in my like recommended reading, it would be that one. I mean, not only is it like historically really rich, it's also written in such an interesting way. Like I've never been that, I don't know if that's true. It's very rare that I've been that immersed in a history book. Yeah. Yeah, me, yeah, me too. And there were like, there were several chapters in there that my mind was just continually blown. I mean, so he has a chapter on the development of Santa Claus and the Christmas tree and all those were great, but like, I loved his section on a Christmas Carol, like on Charles Dickens, story, but the chapter on the, the American South and what, what the, the freedom, the slaves were given. I mean, that yes. was just like blowing my mind. I couldn't believe like what Christmas was during, during the antebellum South, you know, I just, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I decided not to talk about that at all. <laughs> I know. How do we even get into this stuff, right? It's like well, right, because there was just so much I'd have to say and do with it that it just didn't seem uh, responsible to even try. Yeah. But for anyone listening, go read that book. It's really, really good. Yeah, yeah. One last one, which is just really funny, and I and I need to go back and like review the details. But like, I think this was like New York City. They would. <laughs> The, they would have this like big charity, I think, and I'm just going to make it up and say Madison Square Garden or this big, big, audit, big uh, arena. Yeah. And they brought in all the poor kids and the street urchins and had them eat. And then all of the wealthy people that paid for it were like sitting there watching them. And like it was like some strange socialite charity event. And, and it made me very uncomfortable. Just like I'm like, so wait, they're just watching all these poor kids eat, you know? Like, yes. But but listen, Chris. OK, so. <laughs> Take that image. And here's what I was thinking about. And I didn't put it in the book because it's such a bummer. But like, take that image and think about what happens every year on social media with the videos of like Walmart shoppers fighting over TVs and yeah. fighting over, you know, electronics. Like it's a kind of like poverty voyeurism that still exists. Hey. And we kind of like enjoy watching that happen. And it it's wrong. I don't think it's a good thing. But that I think that perverse enjoyment of like people who have watching people who don't have enjoy things, but they know it's not permanent. And it's sort of perverse that they're in the situation to begin with. Like, it's still there. It's really problematic. I like it. Thank you. That, that next time I'm scrolling through reels on Instagram or whatever, I don't have TikTok, and I see something like you know some kind of cultural voyeurism like that, I'll be like, oh boy, here I am. You know, I'm given into that. I mean, me too, right? It's not just you. <laughs> it's not just me, right? Yeah. I, I have some questions that I want to get into regarding what we do during Christmas, but I have a I have a broader church calendar question first. Okay. This is one that I'm just interested in. I I I, I guess. I want to step into a little bit of controversy here. Um, At least it isn't, it's not really hugely controversial. I guess when I was introduced to Anglicanism, I was adamantly taught that Advent is the beginning of the church calendar. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I want to say is, is I, I can see it. I can kind of understand it, but I think I disagree. I think, I I don't I kind of don't understand it. So Advent is all about the end times and things are coming to an end and will be reborn. Mm-hmm. And and so we have all these eschatological, this like, you know, world-ending stuff. We are in darkness and the light is coming. I'm sorry, it's not the beginning of the church calendar. Okay. Uh that that's that's my contention. Um also. For better or for worse, we have aligned Christmas with the solstice and with with the literal new year, like according to our secular calendar or whatever we want to call it. I I just wonder, this this is maybe a a similar type of thing, like maybe it's too much to even fight against. I think as a thematic person, somebody who like sees the themes, I I just don't, it doesn't compute for me. And I think we're, I think we've. I don't. I wonder if somebody made this decision as like to be kind of like a to to uh, fight against the way the culture was or something like that. Now, a contrarian. I, I, to be contrarian. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I will say this: uh, the incarnation was had already happened, so to speak. So, I, I think theologically, we could say, well, 
at, at the Annunciation. So yeah, during Advent, you know, Jesus is here, but but there is something about the it culminating in the birth, uh, his birth. And I don't know. I just wonder what you thought about that. If you had any. What I hear you saying is that that you think that even though someone may have like someone somewhere has officially set Advent as the start of the church here, that you think that functionally Christmas actually serves that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I don't think I disagree with that observation about the way it functions. I I don't know if it's just because I'm a I'm a church calendar convert who tend we tend to be more like passionate you know when you're a convert to something I still want to hold on to it though as being the official beginning maybe because of that inner contrarian that wants to say to the broader like world while you're shopping and buying sure go ahead do that also judgment is coming <laughs> judgment is coming. But I, I get what you're saying, because if you were like if you and I were planning the church calendar, uh, it would make sense to start with the incarnation to conclude and then conclude the calendar with Jesus is returning. I get that. Which we yes. haven't gotten to yet. You know, so we we are Advent is this already, but not yet where we're we're waiting where, you know, or I mean, Advent is we're Israel in exile. You know, we are away from our homeland, but oh, the promise is coming, you know. So yeah, right. I don't know. I'm also convinced by Fleming Rutledge, who says that the church lives in Advent. And I think mm, she's yes. right. I think the yeah. church lives in Advent. And so there's a way that it the logic makes sense to start with it, to remind yeah. the church who she is, where she is, and what time it is, right? Yeah. Um, to set the stage for the rest of the church calendar. Because that, at least for me, in my preaching and teaching, the themes of Advent never actually go away. The fact that we are awaiting judgment, we are awaiting new creation, that we're living between the times. Like right now, we're in ordinary time. And I don't know, uh, we're doing a lot of parables right now from Matthew's gospel. They're all about that. Judgment is coming. It's in the hands of the Son of Man and his angels. And in the meantime, we have to do our work and watch the kingdom grow, you know, like to me, that's a very Advent theme. So there's a logic to starting with it, but I don't disagree that functionally Christmas has become the beginning of the year. I think we're very much on the same page in the same, in the sense, especially of Advent being this, we as followers of Jesus are constantly reminding everybody that it's all culminating in, in this end or, or that, we are going to die and we have to accept our mortality that so in the midst of the christmas season we're rem we're reminding people of uncomfortable things i'm 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 all there for that that's great <laughs> yeah yeah i but i also think that one of the one of the curses and blessings of our very hyper connected age is we do we all have more of an awareness of just how bad things are right and that's where i think the we as a church have to always be talking about both the promise and the perils, right? Because the whole world is aware of this. And if we pretend like we're not, we're just going to miss them. All right. I have a funny, random thing to share. This is kind of out of nowhere. So we're recording this. This is Christmas in July. We should acknowledge this. this we're, we're recording this months in advance. And uh, yesterday there was this congressional thing where um, they, they, and who knows what's going to be revealed by December 2023, but they talked about that we have discovered UFOs and we, we, uh, did you hear this? I've, I've seen the headlines. I have not had the constitution to read it. <laughs> so I've, you seen, tell me. I've seen like a two minute video okay. which pieces together, the different uh, congressional experts they brought in the senators and all that stuff. Well, basically just, you know, there, there's evidence that we've recovered you know, UFO crafts and there's been, they called them biologics. And there was, there was, uh, there was actually, you know, recovered remains and whatever that means that we're not human, that we're not human. Now, now see, I saw this one, I saw this one reel on Instagram that this made me laugh so much. And it was just like this guy and he was just doing this back and forth. And the one person that he was talking to is like this little dialogue. The one guy was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. UFOs. Uh-huh. Um, and he was like, not amazed. And, and the other guy was like representative of the government. And he was like, I thought you would have reacted more. I thought this would have like, this is kind of like one of the biggest discoveries in history. 
And the guy was scrolling through his phone. He was like, you know what? I'm, I'm just like a little, I'm overwhelmed by everything right now. I don't, I really don't have a really t- a lot of time to think about this. And what I'm trying to do is relate that to what yes. Advent does, which is the whole world has been burdened by so much and continues to be yeah. like I, UFOs. It's like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> added to the list. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Wow. No, that's a really good point. And so taking time to to acknowledge these darker realities, both in Advent and during the Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas, I think forces you to slow down, pause, process, accept, um, and, and maybe even actually acknowledge and mourn some of these things that you've been, because you're so overwhelmed all the time, you'd never get a chance to to actually pay attention to. Thanks for that diversion, but I'll have to go look that up. (laughs) Let's get into Christmas itself in terms of some practices. Um, You know, one of my fascinations was with the 12 day season and trying to understand what that that meant, that means to us. Could it mean anything to us today? Uh, there was a, a a little book review. I think it was with the Englewood book, uh, Review of Books. Uh, they're they're out of uh, Indianapolis, and one of the things it said in the in, in the review of my own book was, "Well, I don't know if any of this thing this guy is suggesting is actually going to ever take place." And it's kind of funny because I I kind of feel that way. It's like I was tr- you laid out in your own book in your own way, like the twelve days or the various days on the church calendar that we can celebrate and all the different meanings that we can bring to it. Um, I just wonder, like, is that even possible anymore? Is that it? And one of the things, maybe one of the things that I would advocate for, I'm curious what you think about this, is to build in a season of rest. And I think some people do it because we feel it, especially the octave, December 25th to to January 1st. It's like, oh, I kind of get a week to breathe. At the same time, a lot of people, they just have to keep going. Like, you know, any time off is PTO. It is, they are penalized. They might get Christmas off or they might have to work. Um, I guess I would like to see, I know we don't live in an agricultural society like that anymore, but I don't think that matters, to be honest with you. I don't think feeling like we have a season of rest, I don't think that is dependent on everybody works a farm and they don't have to plow the fields in December. I think we, I think a lot of us feel it. I'm, I'm just curious, I'm curious what you think about that and what other cultural changes that we might have to implement that are too hard to push against the general culture? Right. I mean, th- this is the sticking point because the the question of how do we actually allow people to rest? We often get bogged down into it being about a personal choice or even about a household you know, choice together. But it is it is inevitably connected to, like you said, your job. And and that's inevitably inevitably connected to the practices of the businesses in our economy. And that's inevitably connected to the ways that our laws have been written regarding the work week and the number of hours and all that kind of stuff. And so I can't talk about this without saying a few things about our political life, not in the sense of partisan politics, but in the sense of how we choose to live together as a people. And I think that we have ignored the requirement of like human Sabbath at our demise. Like we are suffering majorly from a lack of rest. And I don't mean just Christians. I mean like everybody. And there are actual structural things that could be done to build in the social possibility of rest for people. You can't make people rest, but when there's not even an opportunity for it, I think you're just setting human beings up for all sorts of terrible consequences. So you're right. I think that that we feel, especially during these, these seasons of where there's often lots of travel, there are high social expectations, you're maybe purchasing gifts and and stuff like that, spending money on special food. And it's it's very high stress. And so, like you said, we feel that need for rest in between, say, Christmas and and New Year's. But it's only available to some people. It's only possible for some people. And even among those who have the um, income level at which that kind of rest is possible, there are sometimes folks within the home who aren't allowed to rest because everyone else takes their rest and lets them do all the work. I think we have to, we need something. Something's got to give. 
And I'm talking here about both individual households uh, as well as churches, but then going even further into the way our, our society is structured. We do not have enough vacation time. And I don't mean vacation in terms of like spending a ton of money on a fancy trip. I just mean time to be humans, to rest, to to recover. We don't have that. And I think it's a serious problem. But it becomes acute. We become aware of it acutely during these busy holiday seasons. And maybe you and I, I'm not sure how you feel. You're you're a minister. I, I mean, I'm a minister as well, but I'm not currently serving in a congregation. Uh, but even as ministers or I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, you're a professor, we have these built-in so-called rests in some in ways that other people do not. So maybe we're, we're pretty fortunate in some ways. I don't know. We absolutely are. I think about this. Um, I mean, my, you know, my semesters as a professor, I know yours as a teacher, it's very intense. It is a 24 seven thing, but I get a couple of months every summer to step back from that intensity. And even though I still have work to do, um, I definitely feel like I get the opportunity to rest. And the same is true in the winter during the Christmas break. I do feel like I get some, some rest. Not everyone has that. In fact, when I, in the periods of my life where I've had a so-called real job, I worked in property development for a while and man, I was sad not to have that summer, <laughs> that summer time to rest. Um, so we are fortunate. We definitely yeah. are. There was this, I was listening to this podcast. It's called No Small Endeavor. It's kind of out of this, this, I can't remember his name. Uh, he's out of Lipscomb University in, in Tennessee. And he was talking to this one woman. She was talking about Sabbathing, what it means to live into a life of Sabbath. And she talks about this kind of crazy social experiment where they had these these people go do a task and in the and they had they were all varying degrees of busyness in the task it was all set up and they didn't they didn't quite realize it at the time but they had it was this was a good samaritan experiment is what it was i don't know if you've ever heard about this but they had this guy sitting out in between where these people were traveling back and forth and the only people that stopped and helped this guy were those that were told you have no time constraints. Just take your time today. You, you don't, the task that you need to get done is not, you, you have all day to do it. And they're the only ones that stopped and helped this, this man. It wasn't dependent on personality types or life experience. It all had to do with the pressure. And that reminds me with a lot of what you, you talked about in your book regarding helping others during Christmas. Uh, I don't know. So any thoughts on that? Because to me, though, it's funny how the rest relates to, do we help those in need? Well, so this is, I think, one of the insights that that Brueggemann, ha- Walter Brueggemann has in his book, Sabbath as Resistance. He says, and it's based on others' work as well, that the Sabbath command is the link between the first part of the law, which is about loving and honoring God, and the second part of the law, uh, which is about loving neighbor, right? And that without rest, you actually don't honor, you can't love God and you can't love neighbor. That rest is what enables you to become a person who believes God will provide for you, that God is sufficient to for your needs, that this world is not yours, that it belongs to God, that things you have are given to you by God, which then gives you the like framework within which loving neighbor, even to your own detriment, actually begins to make sense. And so without rest, you can't, you can't do that. And so I think that makes sense biblically. I think it makes sense theologically. And I can see how it makes sense practically. I have long struggled, and maybe you have too, with how as a family to to structure our Christmas traditions, including things around like gift giving and travel, such that it's not all about us and what we want. And I don't know that I've we've ever succeeded at that. It still feels very insular, interior, and not not focus on others. And I'm not sure how to make that change. <laughs> I want to. I see it's a need. And I think you're right that rest is part of that. But what would that mean we have to give up or change about our lives at Christmas in order to make that possible? Okay. Confession time for me. Yes. I wrote this book on the 12 days of Christmas. I have all these ideas. I jammed it with as much many ideas as I could find. 
I would get I, I would say I'd probably get a 40 out of 100, if, if that, in terms of anything that I've actually implemented in my own family's life, you know? Yeah, it's it's exactly what you just said, which is I don't know what to do with that. At the end of the day, we just kind of want to lay around or my kids do and play with the toys that we've given them. When we had a church, you know, it was it was easier to actually do the the, the rhythms. And so you you have that. But it, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm just trying to say, like, even the guy who wrote the book <laughs> is struggling <laughs> right. to do any of this stuff. Well, and part of it is like a chicken and egg thing, right? Because if we don't have, like you've mentioned, if we don't have rest built into other parts of the year, and if we don't have a change of mind and a change of heart around like our consumption habits throughout the year, then it makes sense that we sort of keep repeating the same patterns when it comes to these specific instances like at Christmas too. Because we're all burned out and tired. Why are we burned out and tired? Because we've been working too hard up to that point. We've probably been like running around like a chicken with our head cut off, trying to buy all the right gifts and get all the right food and prepare for all the visitors. Like, of course, we're exhausted and just want to lay around and do nothing. And we need it, right? Like it's an actual need. It's not simply selfishness. But there's a sense in which we recognize we're stuck within this like broader cycle that we can't seem to get out of, at least not just with our own volition. Like we could just cease being part of this rat race that we've all agreed to somehow. Yeah. I don't know either. Well, we'll just, I guess we'll just keep wondering. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's such an interesting question. I, and it's something I really struggle with. I struggle with it in terms of the beauty of the various Christmas practices. And then I struggle with it on the other side, which is how do I serve those that need help? And yes. that we're ignoring. That's uh, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, man. We'll just keep asking, I guess. <laughs> Speaking of that, you know, you mentioned way back a little bit, uh, talking about gifts, gift yeah. giving. Is there anything that you would chime in on and how we, do, do we just go along with it? I mean, by the way, I liked your section on kind of a theology of gift giving, which is, and maybe this, I, I would actually give a pushback to people who are totally against the quote consumerism of Christmas, which I get. At the same time, there is like a, a theological impetus that we come from the great gift giver. <laughs> and, you right. know, God gave us the earth and God gave us his son. Right. And I mean, again, it's a question of, well, then what does, what do gifts look like? But I, I you know, so there's, a, there's, there's, there's something at core to our who we are of how a theological anthropology as you as you put it that yeah. giving gifts is just what we do but i don't know how do how do you chime in on the what do we do about gifts debate well so i think you're right i think we are we are just hardwired if we want to put it that way to to want to give to those especially those we love and care about i think we're hardwired to do that i think we also do so out of gratitude for what we've been given right by god and so i, I think we shouldn't just write it off entirely. At the same time, in such an affluent society, it does become kind of grotesque. <laughs> and I'm saying this even about my own household. I, I can recall Christmases in the past, not so much recently, but in the past, especially I think it becomes apparent with your children, where there are gifts from grandma and grandpa, and there are gifts from you know, other family members and friends. And it, it just, you kind of think to yourself, there's so much stuff here. This is, this is grotesque. This is too much, too much consumption. Where are we going to even put these things? I mean, it's, it's just kind of gross to imagine that you're, it's like, it's like the parable where you're building bigger barns to put your stuff, right? Instead of, instead of sharing. So then, so then the question becomes, where is the line between this sort of divinely given desire to give to those we love and a grotesque overconsumption that is ignoring our obligation to neighbor that is harmful to to even our neighbors yeah and i don't know that i feel comfortable saying well you know this means only one gift per family member or you should only do three gifts or you know, no gifts, but you go on a trip together or like, I just, I don't feel like I can set that down, but I do think it's worth every Christian household 
considering this. And if you have kids if that are older and able to think about this with you, to do that together. We have had, you know, family conferences with our kids about how do we wisely steward our, our funds so that it's not simply about accum- accumulating things every year. Um, and so they've given some input uh, for us in the past too. And I, this is what we do, right? We improvise by the spirit with the wisdom of the tradition within our current context that might look different for you than it does for me. And I'm not trying to be a, to cop out here. I just don't have a rule. This this kind of goes back to like, you know, it goes back to your, your on upcoming book on the family, which is okay. We can make decisions within our family, but then there's bigger decisions. Like how do we change the culture of the church, so to speak? And it's tough. I, I don't have a full full answer to that. I, I was a guest preacher a, a couple of weeks ago, and I preached on the parable of the rich man that comes to Jesus. And it's interesting to ponder how, as much as that's a challenge to this individual man that came to Jesus, what does he do with his wealth? Does he give it up? You know, is it is is it the the one thing that's causing him to not be able to follow after Jesus? It is that, but is that parable also a message of showing? The whole church, all disciples of Jesus, that yeah, you just like like the the, the parable of the, the you're building houses, extra houses to store your things is well, we're just not these people. And anyway, so I, I I'm kind of wondering how they the idea of both the personal and the more social structural things uh, affect how we make these decisions. Yeah, it's really hard, and I think this area about our wealth. Yeah. Um, in U.S. churches especially, has been sort of the untouchable thing. Like, we don't want to talk about it in church. People don't want to talk about it. And I get it. It's really uncomfortable. It's also connected to, as I said before, it's inevitably connected to our political life. And by that, I, again, I don't mean partisan politics, but the way that we've chosen to plan our towns, the way we've chosen to um, prioritize you know, certain modes of living, like single family housing over multifamily housing. Um, These are all connected. And when you start pulling at that thread of like what you do with your money, both individually and collectively, people get really (laughs) upset. (laughs) And so I think a lot of us, whether on purpose or inadvertently kind of gloss over it or ignore it. So well done for you actually like facing that that teaching and trying to make something of it because I think most of us would rather avoid it. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. And I think that area, greed, money, and violence are the two areas that like the U S church is going to have to like do some reckoning and we're not there yet. Cool. All right. Uh, I want to come around another side of this issue. It's really interesting to me is the boisterous raucous, almost pagan side of Christmas. But I'm, when I say pagan, I mean in the context of Christian Europe. And right. it's it's the reason why the Puritans want, basically got rid of Christmas for, for a little while. Uh, My question for you is, is there anything about that side of Christmas that you would want to bring back? I, I'm pretty introverted. <laughs> I just want to, I want to sit and be quiet and I'm good with the, I'm good yeah. with the church services, but it is kind of funny to look back on and we, we've totally we don't do that. I mean, we do it during New Year's, I guess, is maybe one little perhaps yeah. reason of that type of way of celebrating. I was just curious if you if you had any thoughts about that. It's kind of it, to me, it's just kind of funny. So the honest answer is no. If I really get down to it, no, I'm I too am not I'm not a caroler. I big parties, even in the holidays, are just not my thing. My poor husband is a total extrovert and in the car on the way to these gatherings, I'm often already asking him to nail down when we're leaving. <laughs> it's like, come on, could we just enjoy it, please? So that's the honest answer. However, there is the contrarian part of me that would love to see like gaggles of people in the streets caroling, especially down like affluent neighbors, neighborhoods, <laughs> like sort of disrupting the calm, quiet, upper class chill. Uh, because 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 I think what was going on in the medieval period, there was an underlying social political awareness that the status quo is unjust. and And this was their opportunity in terms of the, you know, like social 
um, expectations to give voice to some of that and to to challenge it. Now, if I were up, you know, one of those lords or ladies, I would find it very disturbing <laughs> if a group of drunken peasants showed up at my door demanding stuff. But it's not so much that I want that as much as I I think it would do us good to have a more social communal awareness. We just don't have that anymore. Like if we were going to go on a little caroling parade just through my neighborhood, I wouldn't even know who to call. Like I know my neighbors, but it's not something we would do together because we don't do things together. And anything I'm going to do with my friends, we have to plan like three weeks in advance, right? Around soccer games and events and all this kind of stuff. And that's fine. But I, I guess if I'm nostalgic for anything, it's this communal sense that that we're in this together, that we can do things as a community. And that might include, you know, drinking a little too much and going on a parade or someone's neighborhood. Yeah. Is that bad? Does that make me a bad person? No, it doesn't. And I agree with you. And I'm also actually with you in the thing that you said earlier, which is, nah, I don't want to do any of that. I just want to stay in. <laughs> I, I, I have, I'm, I'm idealistic. So I have the daydream in my head. At the end of the day, I think my favorite Christmas practice is the, the Icelandic practice where they give each other books and read them. Like, did you come across that one? I mean, just like that's I where did, and I didn't include it, but yes, I came across it. Yeah, that's like, I mean, they 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 have risen to the apex of culture. Uh, <laughs> just everyone quietly reading books, you know. Oh, yes, okay, right. <laughs> Christ has come, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. Like, I had this experience this year. I went to, I didn't want to go because we've already established I'm an introvert, but we went to this like choir. It was like a band slash choir concert for my fifth grader and all, you know, all these parents, grandparents, family members, you know, in this, on these uncomfortable metal folding chairs in the cafe gymatorium, you know, where we're all gathered together. There was something about it that, that I was just like, there's a togetherness in this experience. We're all applauding for the, the trombonist who is totally off key. You know, we're all applauding for the kids who definitely can't sing a note to save their lives but we're in it together, right? And there's so there are fewer and fewer opportunities for us, especially in the US after COVID, to experience that kind of we're all in this together feeling. And I just wish we had more even though I'm with you, reading books by ourselves is like awesome. I still think there is actually something we're missing out on. And I'm not trying to be nostalgic. I actually think there's something physical, mental that happens when we are around the members of our community and we get to interact in sort of a common cause and we just don't have much of that anymore. We need that. This might seem totally unrelated, but I'm a, I'm huge into films and it's been interesting for me to observe the Barbenheimer, Barbenheimer phenomenon, which is people are excited to go see these movies and even to see them together. So even things like that, you see this within society. Yes. And it does happen, but then it goes away, right? We don't have anything to kind of latch on to, so to speak. That's right. And I I think my guess, I'm not an expert, my guess is that's part of the psychological appeal for folks who are returning to these liturgical church calendar traditions, because it gives them something that's more social communal to, to find themselves in. They don't have to invent the wheel. They can join into something that already exists. I think that's part of the appeal anyway. Yeah, actually, let's, let's go there really quickly. Is yeah. In terms of changes that I maybe would like to see made, and I'm curious what you think about this, is how do we adapt the church calendar so that more people can come? Not yeah. actually changing things. I'm not talking about changing dates, but it's more like we just have more evening services, or I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out... Uh, how do we help so so we can actually reinstitute these types of practices that make it more practical? You know, like these places that have like, you know, early morning prayer, you know, it's like, you know, you you live in Chicago area, like people are commuting, they don't have time for this. So people are going to kids are going to school. I'm curious about how we maybe change schedules a little bit so that this becomes actually more doable for families, individuals, everything. I don't know. 
It's a great question. This is something that's a, a live question for our little our little church community too. We're we're all three of the the co pastors are are definitely like church calendar nerds, and we we want to you know acknowledge and provide opportunity at least to for our parishioners to acknowledge as much of these like special holy days as we can. But we're coming up against the kind of limits that you're describing, right? We have we have jobs, we have you know, some of us have really little kids. Some of us have teenagers with practices and things to attend. Um, and so we're trying to reclaim the calendar as a source of common life that keeps bringing us back together again as people to worship and pray and and feast and fast together. But it's really hard. I don't know what I don't know what the answer is yet. We should what we should do is we should talk in like a year or two and see if we've made any progress on that front. Yeah, it might be it might be the kind of thing where it, the question is asked almost every year, and and there's like recalibrations that keep going on year to year. Like, okay, well, what? But let's relook at it again. And how do we? Yeah, I mean, so one thing this year, just by for practical purposes, our, we rent space from another church. And so our normal church service is on a Sunday evening. We we meet at five and we worship until around 6.15. And then we have a communal meal following that. So when it came around for Easter Sunday, we were kind of dealing with, well, as Anglicans, we normally have an Easter vigil. But there are two other churches renting from the same space. So how do we do that? So we ended up, we have a lot of young kids in our church. We ended up having our Easter vigil earlier than we would normally have a vigil at like 4, <laughs> 4 p.m. on Saturday. And afterward, went out to a park and had a picnic. And so it wasn't liturgically quite right because it wasn't dark when we brought the light in and all that kind of stuff. But it worked for us. And it gave an opportunity for more families to participate. If we'd had it at like 9 p.m., which would have been the other option, so many of our families that had little kids would not have been able to come. And so that was a sort of practical thing that ended up making it more inclusive, I think. We weren't actually approaching it intentionally to do so. It just happened to be that way. You kind of already answered one of my last questions, but it, there was this section where you mentioned uh, the China, China and Chinese government and churches in China and how the Christ child comes in is a challenge and, you know, and, and that Jesus is a challenge everywhere he goes. And you kind of already touched on it. You, you, you said to us as American Christians, maybe Western Christians, I don't know, but especially America, you said violence. And what else did you say? Was it consumerism or was it something else? Yeah. It's our practices of, of consumption. Yeah. Anything else you would speak to that in terms of the challenge that Jesus brings as he comes each year in the already but not yet? Well, yeah, those so those to me, we have as American Christians, because most of us get our theology and practice from like European Christians, we have largely accepted the myth of redemptive violence. And the myth that like growth and accumulation is always a good thing. And I think those are those are myths. Jesus is really consistent in the Gospels warning against the dangers of wealth, that wealth accumulation. And I don't I don't mean like ha just having stuff, but wealth accumulation and its pursuit is hazardous for your soul. And we just don't believe him. We don't believe him. And so we. It's hard for us to imagine a situation in which we wouldn't want more. And I think we have accepted that myth to our to our degradation. And I think we see this in in so many stories of churches in the U.S. Um, and individuals, for that matter. And there's also the myth of redemptive violence, that violence can have a good outcome, that this is a way that may be justified for the sake of defending something that we think is good and right and, and beautiful. I don't think Jesus gives us that option, uh, but we really want to believe it. And it starts, I think, with Christian, you know, it goes back to our founding myth as Americans, right? The Revolutionary War, you know, it's essential. Give me liberty or give me death. And so we always try to figure out a way to justify violence, whether on a national scale or like an individual scale. But then you've got the Christ child, <laughs> and and you've got the life of Christ, you know, when he becomes an adult. And I don't think anywhere does he give us grounds for, for believing 
that violence is is permitted us. In fact, he dies so that no one else need die again. And therefore, I think Christians are like from the start, and we see this in the early church, uh, prohibited from taking up arms in that way. We have yet to actually feel the full force of this critique either. I think on on wealth and consumption and on violence, uh, Christians in the U.S. have largely just refused to to receive that that critique. And I won't pretend to have that sorted out, but we're gonna have to we're gonna have to deal with that. Thanks again for listening. The Christmas music you've heard here is my version of Salvation is Created, which will be released sometime in the next month on Bandcamp, if you'd like to support me in that way. An alternate and extended version of this conversation can be found on my own podcast, Post-Consumer Reports. Finally, Emily's book, Christmas, The Season of Life and Light, can be purchased wherever it is people get books nowadays. You can be like a faithful, festive Icelander and buy someone her book this holiday season and give it to them on December 24th. I hope you have a happy and merry Christmas tide filled with service, rest, celebration, and yes, worship of the Christ child. See you next time. Bye, friends.